February 2014. At the foot of a tall office building in the Shibuya district of Tokyo, Japan, there is a storefront. Behind these tall glass doors is a project under construction headed by a company just a few floors above. The store, yet to be opened, will be called Bitcoin Cafe. It is being designed with an eye for style, inspired by French bistros with programmed ceiling lights that will glow purple, orange and green. Located not far from Tokyo's largest train hub, Bitcoin Cafe will be a hub for forward-minded, tax-savvy Tokyo citizens. You can stop by for a drink, coffee, maybe a glass of wine, and all payments will be made entirely in Bitcoin. The store's owner, in fact, is the one who personally hacked the registers to have them take Bitcoin instead of yen. One million dollars have already been spent on making this the cafe of the future. But you wouldn't otherwise know it just by walking by. After all these months of preparation, there's little about Bitcoin Cafe that would catch your eye. Its doors are locked, its window shades closed. There's nothing really that would indicate that this is Bitcoin Cafe in the first place, or really any kind of shop at all. You'll have to look very, very close to see the word cafe printed on the sign out front because it's masked in plastic wrapping. Bitcoin Cafe was a really exciting idea. But we're in 2019 now, and it didn't ever open. It never will. Why? Well, there are a few reasons. Foremost among them, the company that owned Bitcoin Cafe and its owner, who conceived of and drove the project forward, were in a bit of a pickle in February of 2014. Hi, I'm Ran Levy. Welcome to Malicious Life in collaboration with Cyber Reason. In this two-part episode of our show, I'll be telling you the story of Mount Gox. Mount Gox was, for all intents and purposes, the most significant corporation in Bitcoin's history. So significant that, at its peak, Mt. Gox handled four out of every five Bitcoin transactions. In its prime, Mt. Gox was essentially the place where Bitcoin happened. And being that cryptocurrencies were only five years old at the time, Bitcoin was THE cryptocurrency. So, naturally, it was a problem in February of 2014 when Mt. Gox checked their Bitcoin reserves to find that of the nearly 1 million Bitcoin under their domain, they had possession of all of about zero of it. Bitcoin Cafe is a sort of a metaphor for its parent company. A wonderful romantic idea which, upon closer inspection, is completely empty. How does the most significant cryptocurrency exchange in the world up and discover it has no money in the bank? Actually, scratch that. How does anyone in possession of hundreds of millions of dollars suddenly lose it all? It's a complicated matter. I'll need a couple of podcast episodes to tell it all. Mark Carpellis loves quiche. 
He doesn't just like Kish, he loves Kish. There are wives who love their husbands less than Mark loves a good Kish. He makes them all the time at home. He's got his own special recipes. He talks about them at length if given the opportunity. Reporters have landed interviews with Mark on the condition that they bring him quiche ingredients from the supermarket. When designing Bitcoin Cafe's menu, in addition to coffee, beer and wine, he made sure to include a variety of quiche options featuring his famous apple quiche recipe. That recipe, by the way, takes hours to complete. To help matters, he hired an independent pastry consultant and purchased a $35,000 pastry oven for the kitchen. In more ways than just quiche, though, Mark is something of an enigma. Famously, in the spring of 2013, he conducted an entire video interview with Reuters while sitting on a blue exercise ball. He would conduct meetings sitting in his vibrating massage chair. He bought a 3D printer for the company offices, which he used to make comps. What kind of food Mark Carpellas like, or what he chooses to sit on or print, may not seem immediately relevant to the matter of multi-million dollar cyber theft, but according to those who know him, it may not be all that unrelated to it either. Aside from the Bitcoin cafe, he liked to spend time fixing servers, one former colleague told Wire magazine, setting up networks and installing gadgets, probably distracting himself from dealing with the real issues that the company was up against. In the final months of his company's existence, Mark took time off to build software for keeping track of Bitcoin cafe's sales. It was this unfazed yet distracted approach to CEOing, which some took issue with as his company, Mt. Gox, began to crumble in early 2014. But the story of Mt. Gox's fall began even before Mark entered the picture. There was a time when Mark felt as strongly about Bitcoin as he did savory open flans. Born in a suburb of the French city Dijon, Carpellis studied in France before moving briefly to Israel, then back to France and ultimately to Tokyo in 2009. An appreciation for Japanese culture wasn't the only draw for him, though. Japan was, and still is, the world's foremost hub for cryptocurrency. Many of the field's foremost properties originate there. There's even a J-pop group called the Virtual Currency Girls. If you want to make it in crypto, Tokyo is a good place to start. And ever since he got his first taste of it, Mark wanted to make it in crypto. Mark first became aware of crypto as a programmer when a client paid him for a web domain in Bitcoin. Not long after, he would find his perfect entry into the market. Hi Mark, please keep all this confidential, I don't want to start a panic and I'm not sure I'll do it yet, but I'm thinking I might try to sell Mt. Gox. I just have these other projects I would like to devote more time to. Would you be interested? It could be very little upfront and just a payout based on revenue or something. There's also an investment group that wants to fund Mt. Gox, probably around $158,000. So you could most likely take it over with some cash. Let me know. Thanks, Jad. 
Mark Carpellas has been described as a super geek, but if it were a competition, Jed McCaleb might just beat him to the title. McCaleb is the one who first bought the domain mountgox.com. If you originally assumed Mount Gox got named after some sort of a mountain somewhere in the world, you'd be wrong. Mount Gox is how it came to be known, but originally this was an acronym, not for cryptocurrency, but for a card game. The game is Magic the Gathering, hence MTGOX, or Magic the Gathering Online Exchange. The original intent of the site was to be a place where players could trade their online cards with one another, like a nerd stock market. It took Jed a couple of years to realize that trading cards wasn't really worth his time. By 2010, he'd entirely rehauled the site, keeping the domain name but replacing all its source code and transforming his venture into an early cryptocurrency exchange where users could trade Bitcoin in exchange for US dollars. Mt. Gox rose rapidly in the months following its brand shift. There weren't really good ways to exchange fiat currencies for cryptocurrencies in 2010, so the market was ripe for the taking. Evidently, though, as more and more customers started transferring larger and larger figure sums, Jed decided the work was not for him. Marco Perez just happened to be lucky enough to know Jed at the time with the means and motivation to adopt the site from his friend. The two struck a deal on February 3rd of 2011, leaving Jed a minority owner and Carpellis the project's CEO. The site was officially handed over the next month. Among other details, there was one clause within their contract that might catch your eye. It read, quote, The seller is uncertain if mountgox.com is compliant or not with any applicable U.S. code or stature or law of any country. The buyer agrees to identify seller against any legal action that is taken against buyer or seller with regards to mountgox.com or anything acquired under this agreement. It was a strange sentiment to disclose in a sale that the outgoing CEO didn't know whether his company was operating legally or not. It probably didn't seem all that important at the time. The cryptocurrency market was so new that all kinds of rules and regulations about its operation had yet to be written. Mark Arpellas, for one, seemed to take little note of it. He would have been prudent to pay more attention at the time. Clause or no clause, not two years after that deal was struck, would Mt. Gox become the most sought-after cryptocurrency exchange, handling 80% of all Bitcoin transactions worldwide, establishing itself as the default location for new Bitcoin's investors and lending its CEO fame and fortune. One of the many Bitcoin investors who were drawn to the successful exchange was Colin Burgess. Hi, I'm Colin Burgess. Um, I'm a Bitcoin investor and uh, trader. Um, I was caught up in the Mt. Gox hack back in 2014. So initially, I didn't use Mt. Gox um, for most of my trading. I wanted to cash my Bitcoins into US dollars um, because I was worried that Bitcoin was about to suffer a hit in the next few days. So I, Mt. Gox was one of the few exchanges which would actually allow you to exchange Bitcoins for fiat money, like dollars. So 
basically I had a couple of exchanges that I had to choose from to do this, and I just happened to choose Mount Gox. But under the hood, a different Mount Gox story was being written. As Colin explains, this story was told and whispered in forums and online discussions, but was far from being common knowledge. In the public's eye, Mount Gox had a good reputation. Um, they had been featured in various news articles. Um, Mark Capellas had done various interviews, and they were supposedly the, the largest volume Bitcoin exchange, although we know now it probably wasn't the largest volume at that time. But actually, behind the scenes, there, were prob- there had been problems and there were a lot of people um, talking on various internet forums for months about problems with Mt. Gox. So there were people who believed something bad was going to happen. So there were basically, you know, that was two, you know, two different sides. There was a sort of public side where Mt. Gox was like, you know, the next great thing. And then there was this sort of behind the scenes where people were voicing concerns. I wasn't aware of the behind the scenes stuff at that point. It was June 20th, 2011 in Japan at around five in the morning when Jed McCaleb's original administrator account within Mount Gox's systems became compromised. Using the stolen credentials of the former CEO, a hacker entered Mount Gox's internal systems and in a single fell swoop managed to artificially alter the nominal price of Bitcoin on the platform from around $17 to just one cent. The market crashed. At this pleasantly discounted price, the hacker proceeded to siphon 2,000 Bitcoin from Mt. Gox customer accounts, then sell them off afterwards at their regular value. This hacker would never be caught. The company wouldn't end up recovering those funds, nor would the customers whose money was leaked. The story made headline news around the crypto world. But the real winner of that early Mt. Gox hack wasn't even necessarily the hacker. You see, while the hacker was doing their business and some Mt. Gox customers were being robbed, other Mt. Gox customers got quite accidentally lucky. Those who happened to be on the site purchasing coin in those very moments couldn't have known about the major price change beforehand. Some of them, maybe, didn't even understand what was going on in those moments. Either way, an estimated 650 Bitcoin were purchased by ordinary investors during the small window in which the coin's price on the site had been set to one cent. Those customers left happy or maybe angry with themselves for not having bought more while they had the chance. None of those purchases were ever returned to the site. But then there were a series of other early Mt. Gox hacks, ones which didn't make front-end news, but caused serious financial and security troubles for the company. Kim Nilsson is a former Mt. Gox user, a Swedish computer scientist who would go on to lead an independent investigation into the company's troubled history. His work, alongside that of other media outlets and law enforcement agencies, would reveal years after the fact that in fact Mt. Gox had experienced a whole slew of other hacks occurring at that same 2011 calendar year. 
On May 22nd, for example, somebody noticed an unsecured network key used by the platform. In other words, a vault without a lock. They waltz right in and took 300,000 Bitcoin. Luckily for Mt. Gox, this wasn't a premediated attack by a motivated malicious agent. For that reason, and because the hacker had left a trail of such easily traceable clues, the person who came into possession of the coin reached out to Mark Herpelis and offered to return the money on the condition that there would be no investigative or legal action taken against him. One other lucky break for the company, Bitcoin was trading at only a couple of bucks by May 2011. In contrast, 300,000 Bitcoin in early 2018 would have translated to billions and billions of dollars. Then, in September, a more sophisticated attack struck when one or more hackers successfully compromised a Mt. Gox database, giving themselves significant administrative authority within the company's internal networks, including read-write access to that database. They used those authorities to inflate their own account balances and then withdrew those artificially manipulated funds. This malicious agent, being more adept than some of Mt. Gox's other hackers, had the foresight and ability to delete most of the trail of evidence connecting them to the crime and came out with an estimated 77,500 Bitcoin in total. The following month, a hacker managed to trick the platform into thinking that coin they were stealing was in fact deposits being made by the platform itself to him. The hacks I've described thus far are merely a few in a list of more than half a dozen major hacks that Mt. Gox experienced in 2011 alone. Those remaining hacks I haven't yet mentioned will become especially relevant later in the story, so we'll hold off on them for now. If anything, the June 2011 hack of Jed McCaleb's admin account is what shook Mt. Gox HQ more than any of the others, not necessarily because of the losses, but the bad press. In response to it, the company instituted a suite of new security measures. Among them, a substantial amount of the currency Mt. Gox handled was moved into offline storage. The move was meant to create a sort of safety net, a pool of funds that couldn't be touched by a hacker moving through their online network. The consequences of this move, it would turn out, would be far greater. More on that later. These 2011 hacks were like pimples on the face of the company. Ugly, but little more than temporary problems. Underneath the surface, however, there were more, even greater problems at hand. As the company became the face of Bitcoin, it was slowly developing. Well, how do I put it? You know those pimples that haven't surfaced yet? They're big and very uncomfortable, but they're still entirely beneath the skin. You can't deal with them at this stage. They just sort of sit there waiting, a painful reminder of an imminent problem. Like an early teenager, Mt. Gox had lots of those kinds of beneath-the-skin pimples. Most of their dermatological issues rooted in Mark Herpela's enigmatic style of business. Enigmatic like not reporting half a dozen hacks of your company leading to major financial losses to the proper authorities. Enigmatic, like choosing to buy out Bidomat, 
a small Polish Bitcoin exchange founded on April 4th of 2011. Three months after Bitomat was founded, they accidentally deleted all the platform's private keys. Private keys are what's required to access a Bitcoin wallet, where currency is stored. That means Bitomat lost access to all the money under their control, around 17,000 Bitcoin in total. So Bitomat was like a bank that forgot the four-digit combo to its safe. Where many saw incompetence, however, Mark Carpellis saw a potential business partnership. Seeking a subsidiary to help his company expand into Europe, Mark bought Bitomat one month after their public embarrassment, when the company put itself up for sale in order to cover for its losses. Some questioned whether acquiring a failed company and its tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt, right when Mt. Gox itself was losing money every month through a new data breach, was the best use of company funds. And then there were problems manifesting within the walls of Mt. Gox Japanese headquarters. Engineers noted that the development team used no form of version control software. Version control in software development is how engineers keep track of changes to their code, address bugs, and coordinate across teams. It's standard, almost unquestioned practice in the field. Without such a protocol, two separate Mt. Gox engineers might alter, overwrite, or delete each other's code without realizing it in advance. And only years into their operation did the company's software team start testing their code before publication. So, for the first couple of years of its existence, the site had been populated with entirely untested code. Software issues, alongside some serious accounting errors, led to significant financial losses for the company over its lifespan. During the month of October 2011, a whole 44,300 Bitcoin was incorrectly distributed to 48 user accounts. While a portion of that money ended up being retrieved, most of the beneficiaries of the company's errors were not so keen on returning their free money, and so 30,000 coins would remain lost to its rightful owners. On the 28th of the month, Mark Pellas himself shifted to using a new wallet software. The software had a bug in it, which ultimately caused 2,609 Bitcoin to be sent to a broken key, rendering it irretrievable. For two years, Mt. Gox was imploding from the inside and soaring to unprecedented success on the outside. The cracks in the wall started to publicly manifest only as late as 2013, when their business in the United States fell under scrutiny. Earlier that year, Mt. Gox agreed to hand its American operation over to a firm called CoinLab. But then they just didn't. So in May, CoinLab sued Mt. Gox to the tune of $75 million, claiming breach of contract. It's difficult to tell what was more concerning to Mark Carapellas, a $75 million lawsuit, or the moment that same month when the United States Department of Homeland Security issued a warrant to seize his company's US-based funds. Remember that strange stipulation in the contract that issued Mt. Gox to Carapellas in 2011? 
quote, the seller is uncertain if MountGox.com is compliant or not with any applicable U.S. code or stature or law of any country, end quote. This is where that stipulation comes back around to haunt him. Malicious Life is sponsored by Cyberism, an end-to-end cybersecurity solution built to empower defenders. So how does Cyberism empower defenders? Here's John Breen, head of global IT security and cyber operations at FlowServe. FlowServe is a global corporation in about 60 countries, um, nine business languages, about 20,000 employees. We make pumps, valves, and seals. And then uh, we do nuclear contracts, military contracts. Our intellectual property is extremely valuable. My entire security team has, our lives would be very different right now if it wasn't for cyber reason. I would not be sitting here talking to you. I would be sitting back at the office, cranking through 15,000 machines to get them all restored or, or purchase new ones if we had to, depending on how bad it was. So cyber reason is watching the shop, watching the, the store while we're sleeping. And that's something that I would have to augment with staff without a platform as good as Cyber Reason. Before Cyber Reason was in our environment, we were playing a lot of whack-a-mole, so to speak, you know, trying to uh, run around and, and, and deal with things that we were understaffed, ill-equipped to handle, um, and this just really helped to fill um, the gap that we needed, not just with the managed service, but the actual solution itself is very uh, good at um, self-remediation, uh, sinkholing IPs and traffic that shouldn't be um, because it's an indicator of compromise, for example. And that's just one task that myself and my team wouldn't, don't have to do anymore. We had, in the past, many challenges around lateral movement of, of, of malops. And with Cyber Reason in place, that just doesn't exist anymore. And it's really, really good at protecting uh, from those types of threats, whether it's ransomware or any other type of malop, CNC, elevation, privilege elevation, um, I, I think that uh, the visibility it gets us and the um, comprehensive understanding of what the threat is and how it's moving, as well as the ability to do queries and, and, and see kind of threat patterns, how, they're, how they might be evolving or how they might have come in, um, hooking into um, uh, threat exchanges for um, hashes that are constantly coming out, uh, indicators of compromise that are constantly coming out. all put in the back end of Cyber Reason um, without us having to load it. I mean, it's just fantastic. Yeah. We love Cyber Reason. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, an investigative arm of the DHS, found that the U.S. subsidiary of Mount Gox, named Mutum Sigillum LLC, has been operating without license from the U.S. Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, rendering the exchange an unregistered money transmitter. As part of the U.S. DHS investigation, it was revealed that in order to accept U.S. dollars from American customers, Carapellus had registered a company bank account with Wells Fargo on May 20, 2011. As part of the application Carpellus had to fill out in order to activate the account, there were two questions of particular interest to the investigators. First, do you deal in or exchange currency for your customer? 
And second, does your business accept funds from customers and send the funds based on customers' instructions? Money transmitter. As a currency exchange, you'd expect both of those questions to be met with a resounding yes. For whatever reason, Carpellis checked the box for no next to both. Bitcoin, in this early stage of its existence, had a reputation as being a preferred means of money transfer for drug dealers and other criminals. It may be that the DHS interest in mutum sigillum was rooted in that reputation, and Mark's apparent disregard for rules and regulations raised red flags. The U.S. government seized a total of $5 million from Mount Gox's bank accounts. As a result, the exchange instituted a month-long ban on U.S. dollars and lost access to the third-party e-commerce platform it used for American money exchanges. Customers began seeing delays in their money withdrawals that lasted, in some cases, for months on end, when in response to their financial and legal perils, Mt. Gox's Japanese bank, which just one month earlier was processing a reported $300,000 to $1 million for them every day, now limited their service to just 10 transactions a day. Mark Carpellis, in the middle of all this, was facing up to five years in jail for his crimes. By the end of 2013, Mt. Gox had experienced half a dozen hacks, systematic corporate mismanagement, a multi-million dollar lawsuit, and a U.S. government investigation. The company was once synonymous with all things Bitcoin trading. Now, because of its near halt on transaction throughput, it fell to being the third most popular cryptocurrency exchange worldwide behind Russia-based BTCE and Slovenia-based Bitstamp. But hey, third place for a company like that? Not bad, if you ask me. Except none of this is the reason why Mt. Gox is so notorious today in the history of cryptocurrency. The company was battered, beaten, and yet remained standing, even excelling, through its tumultuous three years of operation. Mark and his co-workers had about two months to enjoy it before everything would come crumbling down. Back when Mt. Gox got hacked in June of 2011, the whole company, in the sense the whole Bitcoin community, went into panic mode. Engineers at the company worked day and night to get the exchange back up and running after its shutdown. Some Bitcoin enthusiasts in the Tokyo area were enlisted as mercenaries, sitting alongside the team to fix what was broken. Here was a small army of programmers working on the site, fielding calls from concerned customers, and generally doing anything possible to try and patch the holes in the ship. One investor and friend of the company, Jesse Powell, flew into Japan from San Francisco just to sit in the trenches and help. He went straight from the airport to the company's offices without even bothering to drop off his bags in a hotel. In an interview with The Wired magazine, he revealed that at one point he'd went and bought $5,000 worth of computers just to add firepower to the cause. But Mark Herpelis, I said earlier, is something of an enigma. It's one of the only adjectives you can use in making sense of what he decided to do during the period of time when his company was on its first brink of failure. 
a hacker by trade, CEO by circumstance, Mark was right in the thick of that recovery effort, as you'd imagine. By Friday night that week, the site remained offline, so all of the volunteers and employees of the company agreed to come in to work over the weekend. Except on Saturday, the team discovered that Mark was a no-show. Think about that. Volunteers were giving up their time to help the company, and its CEO was nowhere to be found. When Mark did return on Monday, he spent much of the day on tasks unrelated to the shutdown. Mark's behavior that week left his team thoroughly demoralized. Jesse Powell, for one, learned some valuable lessons from the experience. Quote, it was clear after that hack at Mount Gox, he told Bloomberg News years afterwards, that the exchange is really the most critical piece of the ecosystem. End quote. Jesse went on to found his own cryptocurrency exchange, Kraken, not one month after being inside the halls at Mount Gox. He told Bloomberg, quote, I wanted there to be another one to take its place if Mount Gox failed, end quote. In other words, this company is a nightmare and I want to be the one making the money when it finally does croak. Ironically enough, after Jesse's prediction did end up coming true, his company worked side by side with government bodies in the investigation into why it happened. Unfortunately for many, Mark Herpelis himself didn't take away any of the valuable lessons to be had from his company's first publicized hack. It would come back to haunt him the second time around. When Mt. Gox began showing signs of serious problems in early 2014, you'd imagine Jesse Powell was sitting in his living room or at his desk somewhere, looking over articles and online forums, knowing something the rest of us didn't. It all started with that U.S. government investigation and the decision from the Japanese bank to severely limit transaction throughput. As requests to withdraw money piled up to no end in mid to late 2013, Bitcoin investors nervously wondered what was going on behind closed doors. On February 7, 2014, the Mt. Gox exchange issued a moratorium on all withdrawals. Their reasoning was, and I quote, to obtain a clear technical view of the currency process. If you're not sure what that means, that's because it basically means nothing. Three days later, the company issued an official press release on the matter, citing a software bug that had previously caused issues for some other exchanges. A known patch had already existed for the Bitcoin software bug Mt. Gox referenced in their February 10 press release. So as the days went on and the moratorium remained, the financial status of the site became a more and more present concern for customers with the money locked away. Investors were already speculating about the company's solvency. Paul published by Coindesk one week after Mt. Gox set that full pause on withdrawals, found that 68% of Mt. Gox users were waiting on money withdrawals, with 21% of users having been waiting over three months. By the 20th of the month, the price of Bitcoin on the site plummeted below half its value just weeks before. Protests started to form outside Mt. Gox Tokyo offices, causing the company to move temporarily due to security concerns. 
one of the protesters was Colin Burgess, whom we heard back in the beginning of the episode. Colin says he and his fellow investors were already suspicious that Mt. Gox was far from being honest with them. The company has acted in bad faith since the beginning. So when we talk about the company, it's maybe clearer to, to say Corpellas because he, was, he, was, he made the choices in the company. Um, we don't know when Mark Corpellas found out that there was less money in the company than there should have been. I think he claims that you know, it was not long before it went down in 2014, which, of course, isn't very believable. Um, I'm pretty sure certainly sometime in 2013 or possibly before that, he, he must noticed that there was a big, big problem. So, in my opinion, he kept the exchange running for probably kept the exchange running for a, a long period when he, you would think that he would have, he should have known that the company was extremely insolvent. I mean, he must have known that it was insolvent. Whether he knew the extent of, of it, whether he knew it was like completely insolvent or just partially insolvent, that's what we don't know. Um, but either way, he treated the customers and the whole the whole company in a, in a in a very bad way by by hiding what was going on, allowing the value of the missing coins to to shoot up in value. You know, when he inherited the company, eighty thousand bitcoins was hardly worth anything, and then at the end of it, it's worth half a billion dollars. Um, and this is because he allowed things to get out of control in that way. He should have at some point at least sort of owned up and said, okay, there, there's a problem here or something like that. We would never have got to this situation where it was like a huge amount of money. You know, throughout that entire period when we were doing the protest and, um, you know, in, in, in that few weeks, um, the company were being very dishonest, extremely dishonest and misleading. And they were trying to give people beliefs of what was happening that were completely false. Um, and they were doing this very deliberately, and they knew at that time for sure that there, was, that there was no money. But they were still pushing out things, um, saying things publicly, implying that they had all the money. Um, and one of the other things they did, which which had a really bad effect on the industry, was um, they claimed that that the problems that they did have were caused by a bug in Bitcoin transaction malleability. Um, the media picked up on this, of course, what, what they said about a bug in Bitcoin. That, so, that, you know, that was what was reported around the world. There's a bug in Bitcoin. All this money's uh, disappeared or potentially disappeared. Um, even like years later, people say to me, oh, but my God, went down because of a bug in Bitcoin, right? So, you know, the world believed there was a problem with Bitcoin when, the, when there wasn't. The problem was um, that someone had stolen all the money that was you know it was a perfectly ordinary problem it wasn't any kind of technical issue with bitcoin on february 24th mountgox.com went dark mark and his company gave vague explanations for the shutdown to the press but an internal document which leaked just hours later told the real story mount gox had been hacked for all it was worth of the hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin the site managed as of the beginning of 2014, it now had possession over, well, just about none of it. 
the company declared bankruptcy on February 28th. When we use the word hack to describe what bankrupted Mt. Gox, you may have a slightly imperfect picture in your head about what that means. Usually, when we talk about hacks on malicious life, we're talking about events, the digital equivalent of breaking into a bank vault, corporate headquarters, or a person's home. The Mt. Gox hack of February 2014 wasn't like breaking into a bank vault. It was more like digging a hole at the bottom of a bank vault and building a tunnel from that hole directly into your pocket. Then, over the next three years, you get a little bit richer every time the bank's employees toss more cash unknowingly down the tube. You see, every Bitcoin account possesses two categories of identification, a public key and a private key. Broadly speaking, your public key is like your Bitcoin username and your private key is your password. These are long, complicated, auto-generated strings of information that you yourself won't keep track of, but they're how you'd interact with your money as well as other users in the network. The Bitcoin ledger, which displays all transactions between all parties over the entire history of the coin, will display your public key in association with any transaction you enact in the system. Your private key is tied to your public key, but known only to your computer system, so as to ensure your sole ownership over your account. Even large organizations like Mt. Gox, digital wallets, which facilitate individual users' network activity, have their own private keys saved in wallet.dat files. By 2011, you'll remember, cryptocurrency is only a two-year-old concept. A lot of kinks have yet to be worked out. One of those kinks just happened to be that private keys were not, by default, encrypted. If you didn't manually encrypt your data and someone could get hold of or hack into your computer system, they could simply take your private key for themselves. In hindsight, this kind of security vulnerability seems glaringly obvious. But Bitcoin wasn't worth nearly then what it is now. Predicting risk isn't always an easy task in cybersecurity. Bitcoin wasn't worth hacking until it became valuable. And in its earliest days, getting a system to work in the first place and getting investors to buy into the concept probably took first place over security in most people's minds. On September 23, 2011, as part of the Bitcoin version 0.4.0 network update, the platform's core wallet did implement automatic password and pin-protected encryption. If that update could have come just weeks, even days earlier, it might have stopped the malicious agent who somehow, someway, managed to copy the wallet.dat file associated with the Mt. Gox exchange. But alas, history had other plans for Bitcoin and its constituents. By that time in 2011, we already know now, the company had been hit with at least half a dozen other cyber attacks. This one, though, this one was different. The copied wallet.dat file did, naturally, include all the private information the Mt. Gox company had stored. 
with everybody's private access codes, this hacker now had free reign to funnel money at will, all while appearing to the system like legitimate transactions between account holders. Most malicious agents with this kind of power would simply drain all of the money under Mt. Gox's name and run with it. This hacker totally could have done that. But they were too smart to be baited. Stealing so much coin at once could seriously jeopardize the market, causing the very stolen coin to become heavily devalued. Mt. Gox would probably go under or at least catch on and secure the systems, meaning the free money tunnel would be cut off. So rather than take the money for all it was worth at once, this hacker initiated a longer-term plan. Over the next two years, this hacker slowly but surely siphoned money out from Mt. Gox without anyone being the wiser. What that means is that while Mt. Gox was soaring to becoming the face of the cryptocurrency market, while individuals at the cutting edge of technology and finance were learning about, getting excited about, and buying into this new form of investment, propping Bitcoin up from a cheap utopian concept into a veritable worldwide phenomena, a whole 7% of all Bitcoin in existence was slowly, methodically making its way into the hands of an attacker. In an already premature market, the decline of Mt. Gox threatened the very existence of Bitcoin and all its proponents. The price of the coin dropped over 20% in the month of March 2014 following Mt. Gox's bankruptcy filings. Sensing a frenzy among investors and declining reputation in the rest of the world, CEOs and founders of six of the largest other Bitcoin exchanges, not least Jesse Powell of Kraken, formerly a friend and ally to Mark Harpelis and his company, published a joint statement condemning Mt. Gox and its business practices, using words like tragic and trust sequendered, and pledging to create a more secure, transparent future for the industry. While investors decreed the loss of their money to Mt. Gox and fought to make hell about it, few people can claim to have as bad a month as Mark Herpelis did. The day before his entire company shattered, he resigned from his post as co-founder of the Bitcoin Foundation, the highest organization tasked with oversight of the Bitcoin network. Protests continued outside this company's Tokyo offices, and Carpellis was now receiving waves of hate mail and death threats every day, as well as lawsuits. One class action suit was filed in order to prevent him from moving any money overseas. Why? Because many people suspected that Mark Carpellis was his own company's hacker. With no other scapegoat quite so fitting, Mark Herpelis had become, in the span of just a few weeks, the unquestionably most hated man in Bitcoin. But why would he put his own company out of business? Was this man a negligent, incompetent CEO or a devious mastermind thief? Find out next time on Malicious Life.
That's it for this episode. Join us in two weeks for the second and final part of this series on Mount Gox. Two special announcements. The first, we launched our very first listeners survey last week. A listeners survey is an extremely important thing for a podcast. It helps to establish a clear idea of who the listeners are in terms of age groups, occupation, education, etc, which in turn helps us when talking to potential sponsors of the show. So by taking the survey, you're more than doing your part in helping malicious life keep going with great new episodes. And as a token of our appreciation, if you take the survey, we'll send you a special bonus episode, an interview I did with Chris Weisopel, aka Weldpond, a founding member of Loft, a well-known hackers collective which was instrumental in shaping the world of cybersecurity back in the 90s and early 2000s. Visit our website malicious.life and click the banner to take the survey. Thank you for supporting Malicious Life. And speaking of support, we're now officially open for new sponsorships of the show. So if you or your organization are interested in learning more about sponsorship opportunities in Malicious Life, you can reach out to us via the Contact Us form in the website or via email at eliad at malicious.life. That's eliad, E-L-I-A-D, at malicious.life. As always, you can find me at ran at ranlevy.com. That's R-A-N at R-A-N-L-E-V-I dot com. And on Twitter at at ranlevy. Follow at Malicious Life for updates on new episodes. Malicious Life was produced by PI Media in collaboration with CyberReason. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. Oh my God. CK Music. Music. Music.